So this afternoon, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, opening the heart. Um, sometimes as the retreat progresses, uh, it gets a little tight in here. It gets a little hard. It gets a little uh, maybe claustrophobic. And uh, so it's sometimes said that uh, wisdom and compassion are like the two wings of a bird and that the bird can't fly with only one wing. Um, and so while we train the mind to see more clearly what is arising in the present moment, sometimes it might be hard for us to meet that which might we might judge as flaws or faults or unwholesome qualities. And while words like observe and allow suggest the notion of dropping the judgment of those second and third and fourth and fiftieth and one thousandth arrows, uh, you know, even if we can intellectually know that we're not our thoughts or our behaviors or our emotions, it can still be difficult to release that self-judgment when we might be clinging to an identity of who we want to be, who we ought to be, who we should be. You know, being a good Buddhist or a bad Buddhist. Um, so we might hold up some idea of perfection maybe even measuring ourselves up to the Buddha or to our teachers, forgetting that even they are, they were human beings. And that the nature of being human includes fallibility and imperfection. You know, in the story of the Buddha, it said that it took him lifetimes, many lifetimes, to perfect the qualities that enabled him to become a Buddha. And I find it reassuring that in the suttas, there are occasions when the Buddha tells Ananda to do the teaching because he's experiencing back pain. So I think connecting to the humanity is sometimes important because we can sometimes forget that. When we load ourselves with the shoulds and the oughts, that just makes more suffering. And I hope all of you are here practicing to be free of suffering and not coming to practice more suffering. So if we're on this path to be free from suffering, it's helpful to see how we add to our own suffering through this lens that leads to perhaps judging ourselves and others. For me, opening the heart 
to embrace my own vulnerability and the vulnerability of being human has become an essential part of my practice. It really made a huge difference uh, in my relationship to practice when I started to add these heart practices. So I want to read a short exposition on the topic of vulnerability by David White, because I find it really uh, intriguing. He says, vulnerability is not a weakness, a passing indisposition, or something we can arrange to do without. Vulnerability is not a choice. Vulnerability is the underlying, ever-present, and abiding undercurrent of our natural state. To run from vulnerability is to run from the essence of our nature. The attempt to be invulnerable is the vain attempt to be something we are not. And most especially, to close off our understanding of the grief of others. More seriously, refusing our vulnerability, we refuse the help needed at every turn of our existence and immobilize the essential title and conversational foundations of our identity. To have a temporary isolated sense of power over all events and circumstances is one of the privileges and the prime conceits of being human, and especially of being youthfully human, but a privilege that must be surrendered with that same youth, with ill health, with accident, with the loss of loved ones who do not share our untouchable powers, powers eventually and most emphatically given up as we approach our last breath. The only choice we have as we mature is how we inhabit our vulnerability, how we become larger and more courageous and more compassionate through our intimacy with disappearance. Our choice is to inhabit vulnerability as generous citizens of loss, robustly and fully, or conversely as misers and complainers, reluctant and fearful, always at the gates of existence but never bravely and completely attempting to enter, never wanting to risk ourselves, never walking fully through the door. You know, I don't know if David White is Buddhist, but a lot of what he says here rings very similar to what the Buddha's teachings um, remind us about, about ill health, accident, loss. Our actual 
inability to control, you know, others and our circumstances. There's this illusion that there's somebody up here somewhere that's in control. And yet, every time we sit down on the cushion, we get verification that we're not in control. That the mind decides to go somewhere else, even with the strongest intent to say, I'm gonna stay with the breath. <coughs> the mind decides to go somewhere else without our, without our consent. So for me, turning toward compassion and kindness allows me to be human, to make mistakes, to stumble, to fall. Pema Trojan says this, genuine compassion comes from the fact that you see your own limitations. You wish to be kind, and you find that you aren't kind. Then instead of beating yourself up, you see that that's what all human beings are up against. And you begin to have some kind of genuine compassion for the human condition. And you see how challenging it is to be a human being. You try to be peaceful and never raise your voice. And you find out that you have a lot of rage. The Dharma is about making friends with the groundlessness and discomfort of those feelings. It's not about making rules so that those emotions never arise. And I know for myself that somehow there's this little subtle thing that creeps into my practice when I'm on retreat that somehow, you know, comes in and says, I want this, but I don't want that. You know, I only want the wholesome states of mind. I don't want those unwholesome states. And I get sabotaged because I start clinging to wanting something. Wanting, you know, the, the positive emotions and not wanting the anger that arises, not wanting the irritation, not wanting the impatience when I'm waiting for food in the food line. So I get to see all of that, but sometimes the seeing of that hurts. You know, I see this, uh, if you've ever seen the image of Manjushri, you know, he wields a sword. And, you know, the sword is very sharp. And so we cultivate these eyes that see, but sometimes that nice sharp sword, you know, cuts and it hurts. Because maybe we're not ready to let go of the idea of that image that we want to uphold or how we want to be seen. And so that, you know, anger that arises, oh, Buddhists don't have anger. 
know, the, the idea, the illusion that somehow, you know, when I get enlightened, you know, I won't have all of these things. And so we buy into the new improved me. And, you know, I won't be happy until I achieve the new improved me rather than actually being here, present, and seeing that the opportunity is right in front of me. Accepting myself just as I am. Allowing whatever is arising just as it is. Not needing to say, this is unwelcome, only you are welcome. But instead, having this radical welcoming of everything. So the heart practices of metta, loving-kindness, and compassion, karuna, are helpful for me to encourage my heart to open. And they also allow the growth or the emergence of appreciation and joy and happiness in my practice. So metta, loving-kindness, is this quality of heart um, that, I, that I see as warm and friendly, not harboring ill will. You know, sometimes we take the words loving and we think somehow I have to love everybody, even though maybe I dislike somebody, you know, maybe I don't agree with them, and somehow I have to, like, love them. And actually, it's this idea of the absence of ill will and of maybe just general um, respect for this other human being. That's all that's needed. Maybe it's just holding goodwill. I think of it as the feeling or the emotion that you get when you see a good friend that you haven't seen in a while. And it's this kind of welcoming gesture. You know, maybe you wanna give them a hug or somehow greet them. And the heart just opens. It's undefended. It's at ease. It's like, wow, you know, I haven't seen you in a while. It's great to see you. You know, and you f if you think about the kind of body language that we have when we see someone that we're truly welcoming into our space, you know, the, the chest is open. It's undefended. If you think about when we feel threatened or that we don't feel safe or comfortable, you know, the arms usually kind of cross in front of the chest and there's this closed, you know, I've got to defend myself in some way. And so to recognize the quality of that feel, the feel that happens when the heart 
is just open and welcoming versus the sense that we get when we feel threatened or uncomfortable. There's, there's this contraction, this tightness in the heart space. In Karuna, compassion is this heart of metta, this quality of this warmth and this um, welcoming quality that responds when it encounters suffering. It's what arises when that heart that's undefended meets suffering. It's a moving toward rather than moving away to alleviate that suffering. It's a quality of sometimes in the neuroscience field, they call it tending and befriending. You know, and so we hear a lot about fight, flight, and freeze, and how when the amygdala gets triggered, and we feel threat, you know, we either want to run or we want to fight or we freeze. But there's another response which is tending and befriending that can arise. And um, a, a, a wonderful example of this, this was told to me by uh, one of my compassion teachers. Uh, she knew someone who was running the Boston Marathon on the day of the bombing. And this woman was running towards the finish line and suddenly she heard all of these explosions and she was a little confused by it at first because she was like, wow, you know, is it fireworks? What's going on? And then she saw people running away, running toward her. And, uh, you know, I could imagine myself going, oh gosh, I don't want to go that in that direction. But because she, her heart was open, because she had this tend and befriend attitude, she actually ran towards the commotion and she started helping people and uh, working to pull the people that were wounded away. And so that's a really different kind of response than we might think of. But this is this quality of the heart that's moved to want to act in response to seeing suffering. One that says, oh, I'm touched and I don't want to see you suffer. And so this is the, these are these two different qualities that I find helpful in my own practice. I find them helpful because sometimes when my practice gets difficult, I can shut down or I can contract, I can resist it and I can go, oh, I don't want you, I want something else. And I forget to tune into the compassion piece, which is, oh, you're suffering. Oh, that hurts. Oh, that's painful. The moment that I respond with that, 
there's a different shift. There's a shift that opens. There's a shift that gives a little space around it instead of that reactivity and that contraction, there's a possibility. Metta and Karuna can also help us with uh, being an antidote towards our tendency to only look at what's negative in our practice. You know, Rick Hansen often talks about negativity bias. You know, as human beings, we look at the things that, that are negative, we remember them strongly because those are the things that keep us safe. <coughs> you know, we don't want to miss the threat because the threat could be something that could cause us harm or could be, could be fatal whereas we tend to overlook or ignore the positives. Because it's not so consequential if you miss eating that strawberry. You know, you can go find more strawberries later. That's not going to threaten your safety or threaten your life. But not seeing the saber-toothed tiger that's hiding in the grass is a different story. So we tend to, uh, sometimes I tend to, you know, take my practice and things are going well. And I start looking around like, okay, so what's going wrong? Rather than what's going right. And so it's helpful to bring mindfulness to actually tend to wholesome states. This is a little bit about right mind, uh, right effort. And, you know, tending to what's wholesome, what's arisen that's wholesome, can support us and nourish us and allow our practice to deepen further. So for example, if I'm mindful when I'm eating, and I really take in the sensory experience of the food that I'm chewing, really taste the flavors, feel the texture in my mouth, take time in swallowing, I might actually find that I'm more satiated. I might actually find that I might eat less because I allow the stomach to catch up with the brain or, ver or vice versa, the brain to catch up with the stomach. And also because I'm paying attention to the, uh, the sensory input of the pleasantness of the food, the warmth, the, the taste, I'm not looking for more. I might actually find that, oh, I feel satisfied. I have enough. I'm not looking for that extra helping. Maybe I can have just this. And so the amount of greed that we might have might start to lessen because I'm paying attention. 
and paying attention to being content. Because the sensory experience of eating, when I slow down, when I pay attention, becomes fulfilling. I'm not looking to the next bite for that. This bite has richness. This bite has depth. So maybe the idea of thinking I need more starts to fade. The other thing is, is that sometimes uh, when we neglect the wholesome states, uh, we miss the opportunity for the mind to settle a little bit more. So, for example, uh, relaxation or ease and joy and happiness are factors for the mind to settle more deeply, to relax. These are factors for concentration, for samadhi. You know, and sometimes we we take that differently. We think, "Oh, I've got to get, I've got to get concentrated. I want, I want, you know, this this samadhi." And what happens is we're striving. We're we're working hard, and we're not relaxed. There's a tightness that arises, and so instead of ease, we have a little bit of just a little bit of this clinging, gripping, wanting that creeps in, that hinders the mind to settle. There's just that little bit of agitation. And sometimes there can even be this self-judgment or self-blame or self-criticism that says, I don't deserve to experience joy. I don't ex- deserve to experience this happiness that's arising. Why is this happiness arising? I have anger in my, you know, I'm still an angry Buddhist. I'm still a bad Buddhist. So to kind of counter that self-blame, that self-judgment, that self-criticism that can arise sometimes that blocks the ability, that blocks the conditions for happiness to arise, for joy to arise. Sometimes the mind gets calm and we forget to notice that maybe the hindrances aren't present. And that might be a moment that we could take joy. Wow, it's nice. I'm not assaulted by desire. I'm not assaulted by aversion. My mind is clear and stable and bright. I'm not caught in sleepiness. I'm not caught in agitation. There's no doubt. This is great. Sometimes the negativity bias tends to overlook those. Forget to pay attention to the pleasantness maybe in the calm. The joy that starts to arise. So, you know, in the 
often in 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 our insight meditation uh, in the West, the heart practices have been adapted. Uh, you know, to first start with somebody who's uh, maybe a benefactor or somebody easy to love, easy to have uh, warm feelings to. And I remember a s- the story about, you know, the Dalai Lama being perplexed that there were some questions about, wow, some people have self-hate or uh, self-criticism, self-judgment. And, you know, in the, in the original teachings of the Buddha, he starts with these practices for oneself. I find that really interesting. That maybe that's really important. You know, sometimes we jump over ourselves. It's very easy to go, oh, I can have loving kindness for others. I can have compassion for others. But when it comes to having that for ourselves, that's a difficult place. It's difficult to to be kind. It's difficult to hold ourselves with love, hold ourselves with compassion. So I'm not going to go into these practices, but I just want to suggest a, a slight change of attitude or a slight change in frame of mind that might allow you to tap that to possibly open the heart or soften the grip of resistance that comes up when we encounter difficulty. And so it's to really pay attention that when you notice resistance is coming up, when you notice that the mind is contracted, when it's bracing against something Can you connect? Can you be radically honest to say, this is difficult. This is a struggle. This is suffering. Oh, the moment that I do that, something shifts in me. I'm no longer resisting it. I'm actually going, oh, you know, it's like holding a baby and going, oh, I just want to hold you and calm you and soothe you. And that that little bit of shift might give you a little room, a little distance from that tightness, a little distance from that resistance that can allow you to, to become intimate with whatever is difficult to turn towards the suffering rather than running away, to bring it in, to hold it close with a heart of care. You know, when we started the retreat, I talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the precepts are about how we treat one another on retreat. And sometimes we forget to treat ourselves on the retreat with that same kind of care. And so can we care for ourselves in that moment of difficulty and go, oh, instead of saying, oh, you should try harder and, oh, you know, I've got to beat this or I've got to push this away, can I let it in? Can I let it in? And in the 
process of letting it in, allow it to transform. Jack Cornfield says, the human heart has the extraordinary capacity to hold and transform the sorrows of life into a great stream of compassion. Compassion is the movement of concern and kindness in response to the difficulty of any living being. Compassion arises when you allow your heart to be touched by the pain and need of another. And I want to suggest ourselves as well. And I want to make a slight distinction here because sometimes we go into the, you know, the, this place of empathy and this place of thinking about this ruminating place. I wish it were different. I want it to be different. But this quality of compassion, just like the quality of metta, doesn't depend on a result. It's not, I will be kind to you if you give me something back. It's not, I will be compassionate to you if I give you, if you give me something back. If you behave, I'll be kind. If you behave, I'll be compassionate. It's this open-hearted gift that says, I love you and accept you just as you are. I want you to be free from suffering. I see your suffering. Can we do that for ourselves is the question or the, or the, um, maybe the invitation to turn toward that and in the process transform that suffering into compassion. When our heart softens because we start to meet that difficulty with tenderness, we have an opportunity to step out of reactivity into a softer, kinder response. We start to make friends with those things that we find difficult. You know, in the quote that I read from Pema Chodron, you know, that's pretty radical, making friends with the discomfort of those feelings. But when we start to actually bring them in, get them a little closer, we start to become familiar. We gain familiarity. And those things don't scare us as much. You know, sometimes we have fear of fear. <laughs> a fear of pain, because we hold it out there. We don't want it to, to get close. What if I bring it in and I start to recognize it? I start to go, oh, fear. It's just this little quivering here and a little bit of a rapid heart rate and maybe a little bit of clammy hands. But if I just pay attention to that, clammy hands, that's okay. It's just clammy hands. And maybe you've experienced clammy hands when it's foggy outside or rainy outside. 
It's just the context. So we start to um, perhaps take the, the charge or the potency out of these emotions. We take that uh, power that they have over us and we start to dilute that. Because instead we're meeting it with tenderness. We start to tease it apart. We start to get familiar with that. So I don't have to be afraid of anger. I can just notice the intensity. Maybe the heat in my face, the tightness in my chest. I can just recognize that as something that's very strong. But I don't have to be overwhelmed by it. So maybe by doing that, we can learn to be with these, these difficult emotions in a different way. So I want to end with a poem by Dorothy Hunt. Do you think peace requires an end to war? Or tigers eating only vegetables? Does peace require an absence from your boss, your spouse, yourself? Do you think peace will come some other place than here? Some other time than now? In some other heart than yours? Peace is this moment without judgment. That is all. This moment in the heart space where everything that is, is welcome. Peace is this moment without thinking that it should be some other way. That you should feel some other thing that your life should unfold according to your plans. Peace is this moment without judgment, this moment in the heart space where everything that is, is welcome. <laughs>